Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dead Cat. Tom Dotan from Insider, joined by Eric Newcomer of Newcomer. Thanks for joining us in the chat today. So today we're going to do it. We're going to talk about Twitter content moderation and the internal documents released by Elon Musk. Maybe is the only reason he bought Twitter. It's not clear. So we're going to talk about how content moderation is done, and we're going to like it. So joining us to talk us through this is Alex Stamos, former CISO at Facebook. He is also the director of the Stanford Internet Observatory, and he is now apparently an Elon Musk nemesis where he runs a propaganda platform. So says Elon. But first of all, Alex, welcome back to Dead Cat. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about all this. Thanks for having me, guys. Returning guests. always love it. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to do this. jacket? How many do I have to do this before I get the, the master's jacket? <laughs> You're behind Aaron Griffith and who else is like a Te- frequent? Teddy Schleimer. Teddy, yeah. yeah. So whoever gets to five first definitely gets some swag. So we're going to do this and we're going to do it in good faith. And I'm even, I'm even going to call it the Twitter files, which is what Elon wants us to call it. So basically, let me just summarize what has happened so far. There have been two stories, all of which have been posted on Twitter, which as a side point, I think is really lame. As a journalist, these stories exist entirely on Twitter, and it's all because Elon is controlling these documents, and I think as part of his, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. With they, the journalists. they agreed yeah. to publish them on Twitter. Yeah, but these are good journalists, independent journalists who have done it, but I think that particular concession is lame. But anyway, here are the two tweet storms that have come out so far. The first one is from Matt Taibbi, who is a substacker and, you know, longtime investigative journalist, and he's writing about Hunter Biden. And in the tweets and, you know, from the internal documents, he showed the internal deliberations around pulling down the content that came from Hunter Biden's laptop that were initially leaked to the New York Post via Rudy Giuliani. Some of this were deliberations inside Twitter about the decision to block all the links from the New York Post, uh, which was a pretty big deal at the time. and, And I still think kind of crazy. And some of it was just about pulling down pictures of Hunter Biden's dick. So that Tybee was, didn't make that clear, but yeah. Yeah. So, so, so part one was all about Hunter Biden and that whole story that turned out not to push the election towards Trump. And then the second one, which came out yesterday or last week when you guys all hear this, that one is from Barry Weiss, also at Substack. And she's dealing with the topic of shadow banning, uh, which is a, basically the curtailing of the reach of certain users. In her tweets, she showed that Twitter had flagged and de-boosted certain accounts like Dan Bongino. Ambongino? Ambongino? Uh, that guy, a Stanford professor, Jay Bhattacharya. None of us know, which speaks to uh, where sort yeah. of our... I just don't spend enough time lie, on but... Facebook to get the full Bongino <laughs> or Gino. So, so then there's also a Stanford professor, Jay Bhattacharya, who had some anti-lockdown content. It appeared that he had also been de-boosted in certain ways. And then there's Haya Raichik, a.k.a. Libs of TikTok. And it showed that all of these accounts have been flagged and in some way kind of de-distributed in a way that they had been expecting, removed from trending topics and search. Uh, And then also in various tweets, uh, there were internal debates about the use of spam enforcement policies as a trust and safety cudgel. And there's also this question now about whether Twitter was being genuine in its previous claims that it did not shadow ban people, which then, of course, gets into the very exciting semantics of what shadow banning means. All right. So we want to bend over backwards to be fair to these people, I think that's all, all our inclination, Alex. I've seen you trying to steel man the argument. Of these tweet storms, is there a piece out of it that you would say is the best critique or what's the most substantive piece to come out of these two tweet storms in your view? So I feel like the first tweet storm, the Taby one, 
which focused on specifically the Hunter Biden situation, has a kernel of truth in the recognition that there is a problem with government and political interference on these big platforms. The truth is, is when you work at one of these companies, everybody is constantly trying to work the refs to get you to change their content moderation strategies in a way they like. Everybody wants their enemies taken down and everybody wants their political friends and fellow travelers to stay up no matter what they do. And so that is a problem the companies are always dealing with. And it is true that if you have a officials in the U.S. government pushing for content to be taken down, then that would be in the United States, possibly a, a First Amendment violation. In the specific Hunter Biden case, there's absolutely no evidence in his thread that anybody who is a actual employee of the U.S. government and therefore covered by the First Amendment did anything. The one example was the Biden team that they could find saying, take down these nude pictures of Hunter. They didn't even say anything about the New York Post story itself. It was subsequent tweets that had specific nude videos and photos, which Twitter has a policy that you cannot put naked photos up of somebody without their permission. We call this NCII in the industry, non-consensual intimate imagery. But you're, you're just Essentially not allowed to Essentially revenge porn, right? Revenge porn is like the, the term that people use. We try not to use it in the industry because revenge implies that the victim did something wrong. The majority right. of the time, it is not the 40-year-old son of a presidential candidate. It is a 19-year-old girl who, right. whose boyfriend did something bad, right? So like, we try not to use revenge porn because the, the median victim here is absolutely innocent of doing anything wrong. And in terms of the government meddling to take something down, a lot of people forgot that Trump was in the White House when the Biden team was asking yes. for these. There were people just saying the Biden administration when it's like the Trump administration was in office. So there isn't even a right. question there of whether, you know, the right people within Biden world were making this question or not. There were no. And Joe Biden was unemployed right. during right. this period of time, right? The DNC is not a government actor. There's no First Amendment analysis that covers the DNC's actions. Um, and Taibbi admits that he could not find any evidence of the government being involved, and then also hints towards that there were emails from the Trump administration, which actually could be a First Amendment violation, <laughs> well, we and then does we not bring any this. of those up. Right. So if we want to steel man this, if we want to, the opposite of straw man, if we want to take it seriously, government interference in platforms is a real deal. But Taibbi, one, did not show that, and two, specifically ignore the possibility of actual government interference. And Musk giving very selective data to a couple of very politically biased journalists is not the kind of transparency we would need if we wanted to be confident that there was not interference on this platform by government. All right. So Tweetstorm one, pretty weak. I, I think that's sort of... It's weak, but there's a, a fundamental, I think there is a real kernel of truth there. And from my perspective, the kernel of truth is that every government on the planet, including ours in the United States of America, is trying to manipulate Twitter and all of the other major platforms. And so I proposed. Here are things you can do if you're Musk. You can have an open database of moderation decisions. There are some interesting privacy law issues there, but you can work around those. You can commit to releasing, you know, instead of just releasing emails from the Biden team, the DNC, not government actors, you could release all communications from all government actors globally. So the Modi campaign, the Indian government, I think really important for somebody whose net worth is tied up in China, like Musk, communications with the Chinese Communist Party is the kind of thing that if you really cared about this, you could release. But Musk apparently doesn't like that idea. Right. We want to talk about that more, certainly. 
While we're still on this topic, what you're saying is maybe the most legitimate criticism or insightful revelation from the Taibi thread. When you were at Facebook and you were probably in the middle of a lot of these discussions, generally, do you think internet platforms handle it well? We have the internal discussions, or at least some of the internal discussions around what was happening around Hunter Biden. It all seems fairly chaotic. It feels a little bit arbitrary. And, you know, there is a certain amount of, well, I guess within the arbitrariness, people's inherent biases and maybe what they would prefer to see happen if they are, you know, donors to the Democratic Party or whatever, informing some of their decisions. So like, generally, how good of an actor do you think the platforms are in these situations? And is there anything from the Twitter specifically that you thought, oh, that kind of stunk a little bit? So in this specific situation, and in parallel, Facebook made a lesser mistake. But I think Twitter and Facebook did make a mistake here in that they took on responsibility for something that should not be their responsibility. If we go back to 2016, they're two totally different propaganda campaigns by Russia and Russian-affiliated groups against the campaign. There was the campaign on the platforms, which was mostly private actors in Russia, Internet Research Agency, and other firms owned by Yevgeny Prigozhin, mostly, in which they were trolling on the platforms. That, I think, is absolutely responsibility of the companies. Facebook and Twitter should not allow a handful of people in a building in St. Petersburg to run a thousand accounts that pretend to be real Americans and get hundreds of millions of views. That should not be allowed. But that was relatively small next to the next one you're going to say. Right. But that was a relatively small impact, I think, versus the hack and leak campaign, which was actually the government itself, GRU, Russian military intelligence, breaking to DNC, breaking to John Podesta's email, a bunch of other people's email, and then leak information to change the overall media environment. Now, the target of that, while there are online components here, the target of that is the U.S. media. And in the reaction to 2016, and with all the pressure, as you know, we have all discussed about yeah, how- Yeah, this was the I last episode. Everybody go back and listen. We dug into this. Yeah. We, we dug into this. I think it's a little unfair to completely blame social media companies for Trump. But that is effectively, I think, the feeling that the companies was the entire center-left media. And I think that there is a kernel of truth in all of this criticism of that is effectively kind of the New York Times consensus is Facebook created Trump. And if you push companies that they are responsible for something like that, then maybe they'll take on responsibility they did it. And I do think the company should not have taken on responsibility for that second class, the hack and leak, because basically everybody is primed from the last election where sort of late breaking information helped tilt things for Trump and social media companies have been blamed for fueling pro-Trump message. So then we get towards the end of the second Trump election, and all of a sudden we have this New York Post story about the Biden laptop. It might be hack and leak material. And so Twitter decides, I think we all think that's wrong now, but Twitter decides for reasons that we can all understand to try and block the story. Now, the story still went plenty wide. It went wider, right? There's a massive Streisand effect here right. where because of Twitter's action, and to be fair, Facebook also did a thing where they kind of downranked it a little bit so it didn't show up in recommendations and such until it was fact-checked, and then they released that as well, but it was allowed to be posted on Facebook. But because of that action, there's a massive Streisand effect, and people pay way more attention to it, and it completely dominates the discussion in the last weeks of the campaign. And Democrats were somewhat dishonest about this whole thing and tried to make it seem like the laptop was like probably fake when it seems like well, clearly right. it was true. Fake or, or Russian, right? And, and I think that figured also into, I imagine, some of Facebook's, or sorry, Twitter's decision making was that we don't want to be seen disseminating something that could have been 
you know, Russian in origin or have some kind of Russian involvement. And we've got a retread right. of everything in 2016, right? Right. I mean, I think these companies did not want to spend another four years of being blamed for being propaganda. But I think this is where Twitter did not have the fortitude to stand up and say, look, if the New York Post publishes something that is hacked or obtained illegally, that is on them. Right. Like, I don't think that Facebook and Twitter should substitute their editorial discretion for the editorial discretion of journalistic outfits, even if those journalistic outfits don't have necessarily great ethics. Right. But I do understand how they got here because it was incredibly sketchy, right? Like the Post is the only outlet that has it. Right. They do not share the hard drive with anybody else. So no other journalist, I mean, the entire journalism world had this huge problem of how do you cover this when you cannot authenticate the documents or authenticate the drive. It took months and months and months for the Washington Post to get a copy. Later, the Washington Post had forensic experts who I really trust look at it and they find that the hard drive has been modified. But none of this comes out in that time. The other media outlets don't know how to handle it. Twitter doesn't know. Again, I think Twitter made a mistake. And so if, if you want to say the outcome of this whole thing is Twitter should not take responsibility for stuff that might be a hack and leak, I think that's true because just this is just the reality of living in a free society is we have a free media. We do not have a national secrets. We don't have like a secrets act, an official secrets act. There are free societies that say before an election, you can't release a bunch of like dramatic new information. Yes. And even if the federal government doesn't have that principle, it's not crazy that social media companies would say, listen, we're not doing a great job sorting truth from falsity. We don't invest enough in it. We're bad at it. We don't want to be the vehicle for a bunch of false information right before the election. So we're basically going to say we don't moderate enough. We don't want to create this sort of like chaos right before an election. Like that to me would be a reasonable stance. I don't know if it's the one I would adopt. Yeah, but you're talking about are they taking down a link from the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the New York Post? That That's where the problem is, is there's a difference between them being responsible for the organic content that is on their platform where people are using, if you're on Facebook and you say, I'm Joe Schmo, I actually live in Wyoming and you really live in Beijing. Facebook has some responsibility there. If somebody's posting the link from the Washington Times, then I think the Washington Times is responsible for that. And like, you're right, other societies have this. In, in France, there's a news blackout. I believe it's 48 hours before the election. And this exact thing came up and that there was a Russian campaign called Macron Leaks, where they had real stolen documents and then they inserted fake documents into the real ones to try to confuse people. And they released it hours before the deadline because their goal was to get online sources to cover the quote-unquote Macron leaks and then not allow the mainstream media to rebut it, it failed in France, right? But we don't have anything like, we'll never have anything like that in the U.S. And so as long as the, you know, there's not a rule around the actual media, I don't think Facebook or Twitter can invent that rule themselves. I want to move on to the Barry Weiss thing soon, but like to structure the Hunter Biden laptop argument, I think the liberal position would be, okay, maybe Twitter mishandled it, but it doesn't undermine all top-down decision-making. They should still have processes for deciding what to put out. And then there's sort of a conservative position, which is just, look how much the experts fail, whether it's the laptop, whether it's COVID disinformation. Every time you have a top-down censorship model, there are major failures. And so we should sort of abandon the exercise altogether. So that is like, Musk kind of, vibrates between these two states 
of there should be no content moderation. And then we're going to do lots of content moderation, but based upon Musk's opinion. Because the truth <laughs> right. is, is right. he's he's really wrapped around the axle by like three or four decisions. The Hunter Biden laptop, the deplatforming of Babylon B. Libs of TikTok, probably. Libs of TikTok. Those are like four things that are very public that happen in the United States. They do not represent 99.99% of what you have to do every day to keep a platform like Twitter actually useful, right? right? And that is where things are starting to fall apart at Twitter is that their basic ability to stop spam, for example, is really getting bad. We're, we're actually publishing a blog post the next couple of days on this on in China, like knowledge about the protests in China have been buried by spam. And it looks like it might not really be the Chinese government. It looks like it's just spammers taking advantage of the fact that there's almost no anti-spam team left at Twitter, no. right? Like, and so if you decide we're just not going to do content moderation at all, you will end up with 8chan. You will end up with something that is unusable at the scale at which Twitter wants to operate. Yeah, and, and we'll, we'll link to that blog post in the episode description because there's been a lot of talk about that. Last thing on this, uh, before we move on to the Barry Weiss thread, in terms of new revelations that came out of what Taibi had posted, it seems fairly thin to me. I mean, even on the topic of, you know, not linking or not allowing links to the New York Post story, I believe Jack even came out while he was CEO of Twitter to say, in hindsight, that was an extreme decision. That was the wrong decision. There's already been some level of mea culpa on the part of Twitter leadership to say, we don't agree with the way this played out in the end. We would take a different tactic if it happened this way. And so the idea that this was a huge gotcha or at least some kind of like confirmation of suspicion on the part of conservatives and Elon Musk, I don't think it was really there, right? Anyone who's been following no. this, right? Nothing he said was different than what Yoel Roth said on stage with Kara Swisher, right? Yoel, who was in charge of the trust and safety team, straight up said, we made a mistake. Here's how the mistake was made. This is what I'd do differently. And everything that Taibi posted backed that up. And most importantly, Taibi said, there's no evidence of government intervention in Hunter Biden's laptop. And there is evidence of the Trump campaign sending other stuff and then just kind of left that dangling out there. But does it matter? Because what's happening is people are framing it up and saying this proves something and having all this anger and rage, at, you know, all those liberals at Twitter without any real evidence. It's it's honestly, I mean, I, I used to be a big Taibi fan back in like the Rolling Stone day. I loved the phrase, the like, you know, the, uh, the vampire squid on the face of a yeah. human about Goldman Sachs. Yeah, right. And I mean, obviously, he should be pretty embarrassed by this. I don't see how you come back. I mean, one, the fact that he's like doing all this work on behalf of this incredibly rich and powerful person, I feel like is incompatible. And it's with like what a he said vehicle for Tucker Carlson just to get mad. I mean, it's sort of yeah. it feels like all a pretense. Right. There's just, no evidence to back what he's saying. It's crazy. It's just like it, from a basic journalistic perspective, you can't have like 60 tweets that are all breathless. And then the actual evidence you show Right. Doesn't demonstrate and he's what you're saying implying. that the government, he didn't see any evidence that the government interfered, even though everybody around him wants basically keep suggesting that it did. And he does nothing to clean up that record at all. No, no. He, he in fact, his thread is inconsistent on this, right? Of like making claims that then he can't back up later in the thread. Let's talk about Barry. So this one it felt a little bit meatier to me in terms of showing off what could arguably be a disingenuous stance on the part of Twitter when it comes to shadow banning. So like I kind of summarized at the outset, there were internal, it looks like screenshots really, of certain accounts. We mentioned Libs of TikTok, we mentioned Bongino, we mentioned Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford, where it did show that they had tags affixed to their accounts saying they were to be 
penalized, deboosted, whatever term you want to use, and not made as, you know, their, their content not made as distributed. I mean, wh- I don't know. What do, you, what do you think about everything that came through Barry's tweets? So I think the, if, if we're once again going to take the best possible version of the <laughs> argument, I think this is a situation where Twitter's executives were not very specific in their language, right? Everything she is talking about is both in the terms of service and have been in multiple blog posts from Twitter that Twitter will allow certain speech to exist, but will decide that they will not amplify it themselves. I think this is a good thing. In fact, do you know who agrees with me on that? Elon Musk. A guy named Elon <laughs> Musk agrees with me and that he specifically talked about um, freedom of reach is de- not freedom of speech. Right. So that is a that is a paraphrase of my colleague Renee Resta of what people have talked about for years, which is a middle ground for these platforms is allowing certain speech to exist and to be findable by people who specifically search it out, but not to use the features of the platform that recommend stuff or provide amplification to push that stuff out. Right. That basically Twitter is saying there's some middle ground. If you're really, really bad over here, you're just off. If your speech is just fine, you're over here and we're going to have to deal with the middle ground where we will allow you to exist, but we're not going to ever recommend you and we're not going to push you on other people. And that is effectively what these different settings do is that people who are multiple repeat offenders, that instead of taking them completely off, they allow them to exist. They allow their followers to see all their content, but they don't recommend them. It feels like some of the debate on the Barry Weiss thread is semantic. It is what is... It's all semantic. What is shadow banning? Because Twitter basically said... We don't shadow ban, but then Twitter defines shadow banning as no one but you can see what you do. And other people clearly see shadow banning as I'm not getting as much reach as I thought I should. But Twitter was very clear that they were fiddling with reach of accounts that violated their policies. So it feels like there's just like a total semantic war going on here. Right. There's a 2018 blog post where the people in charge at Twitter said, What is shadow banning? The best definition we found is deliberately making someone's content undiscoverable to everyone except the person who posted it, unbeknownst to the original poster, right? So they are taking the most extreme version of what people talk about shadow banning, where somebody's effectively in a a complete jail where they they think they're on the platform, but nobody sees it, right? They then say in that post, what we do do is we take people out of search and we downrank stuff. And so, yes, I, I, it is all and, about and the downrank. I mean, of, let's let's get into the definition of that. I mean, downrank basically means if you're looking at trending topics, it won't appear. If you have the algorithmic feed that puts in accounts that you don't normally follow, but it just wants to highlight yes. something of, you know, trend and, and excitement and people are talking about, they'll put that in there even if you don't follow it. So that is like a kind of algorithmic right. boosting that Twitter engages with that they basically push these people out of. Right. They effectively say, the places where we are putting content to you that you did not explicitly ask for, we consider that our editorial responsibility and we will make editorial decisions within that. And that includes both the algorithmic feed, like you said, as well as trending topics and other kinds of recommended, you should follow this account. Here, there's three or four interfaces at Twitter that will recommend content to you. I'm sort of conflicted. There's sort of the COVID case study where Twitter seems to be going after somebody for saying, oh, COVID lockdowns are going to hurt our children because learning loss or whatever with the benefit of hindsight to me does seem like some, you know, censorship around this sort of prevailing ideology. On the other hand, downvoting or whatever they did to libs of TikTok. I don't know if I ran a platform, I did all this hard work. I founded like a tech company. I built it up and I'm like distributing it to the world. I don't know if I'd want to look back at my work product and see that like this account, like harassing 
sort of the most marginal people in our society and just sort of making fun of them, even if it doesn't violate sort of, I don't know, red line rules that I can dream up. Why am I using this great tool that I created to distribute that? Like, what's my obligation there? Which is why this kind of feature exists, to allow that account to exist. Like, if you want it to be able to be there, then you need to have some kind of mechanism where you're not making things worse. And the thing you always have to remember that is that all of trusted safety is adversarial. Any decision you make, the person who you're making the decisions about their content will adjust. And what has happened is you have these effectually, these kind of professional trolls, like Libs of TikTok, who understand exactly where the line is, and they'll go up to a millimeter of that line. And the outcome is children's hospitals get bomb threats, right? And so if you're Twitter and you're like, the real life impact of this account is that people are getting death threats, but they are super careful not to violate. One, you might just make it go away totally and say like, we're just not going to take this risk. Or you might do something like this. We're like, okay, you can exist, but we're not making it worse. We're not going to let you try, you know, or whatever. Right. Right. And so the argument a number of people are making is that Libs of TikTok probably got actually a good deal here and that they violated multiple times. Right. And they got special status, right? If something was adjudicated against them, it needed to go to the highest levels. They effectively got what was then a scandal when Facebook had it called cross-check, which is, which is, this is actually pretty common and something you have to do with these companies is when you have a very large account, you end up marking it so that just a normal day-to-day content moderation worker can't take it down. Like right. you, you can't run a social network where the president of the United States can have their password reset by <laughs> any contract. Worker, right, right, right. But yes, they protected, they protected the account that normal content operations people could not take impact on it. So certainly it looks like Twitter went out of their way to allow t- Libs of TikTok to continue to exist. Do you think there is any positive outcome to the broader public in showing the way internal deliberations happen at social media platforms? Because, you know, I do think there's something interesting about the fact that these were big stories at the time, or there was like a lot of attention paid to the claims by conservatives of shadow banning, and reporters did not manage to get these documents and write kind of the, you know, whatever mainstream media reporters did not get these documents and write the stories that, you know, are coming out now because of Elon. I mean, do you think there's some positive aspect to at least that happening? Yes. I mean, I think one, so this is something I've actually been saying for years. I have a talk in which I talk about how these companies act in a quasi-governmental manner. By They just do. And they are making decisions about people's political speech. They have to if they want to run these kinds of platforms and the, the platforms to be usable and they do not want like really bad outcomes like people dying, then they have to act in a quasi-governmental manner, but they do so without democratic legitimacy or transparency. And so for years, I've been talking about these companies need to be more transparent in their decisions. One of the ways you could do that, maybe a positive outcome and something I proposed to Musk before he called, you know, attacked me for it, was they could run a database for the last 30 days. These are all the content moderation decisions we've made. And you could, they're interesting privacy issues, but you could provide that for people so they could see whether or not there's a bias. Because he's, he's making the assertion that these decisions were politically biased but he's not providing any evidence of that. All he's doing is allowing very... Trump, the Trump people ask for. You know, it's just like, look at these case yeah. studies and we won't tell you about any of the other case studies, let alone actually provide you data that would allow you to sort of analyze it. Right. No, and, and I guarantee you've got like maybe, you know, BLM protesters who say things that could be considered violent against police officers getting the same kind of limit. I totally expect you have Antifa and other kinds of like far left folks, anarchists. There have been tons of complaints by pro-Palestinian protesters that claim that they are constantly getting, you know, whatever, de-boosted shadow banned. And I mean, the, the really frustrating thing about the take that came after, you know, Barry's tweets was like, 
this is only happening on one side. And it's like, well, yes. you're going to say it's only happening on one side when it's reported by someone whose goal as a reporter right now is to show that the left is censorious and that the left's goal is to make sure that conservatives do not get the read through mainstream channels. You're not going to get an even-handed hearing from Barry Weiss when it comes to, you know, leftists, true leftists, not like center left, but like actual Antifa or I don't want to say Antifa because that's loaded, but you know, like Palestinian rights, any any sort and of it's also Muslim behavior, rights. Bad behavior yeah. can be asymmetrical. Like these people just assume that there's necessarily symmetrical bad behavior, and I just find it right. a totally absurd claim. Which, if you had a database here, you could get different groups analyzing that data and then publishing their methodology and doing peer reviewed work on we think they're biased or not. And, and you're totally right, Tom. Like, there are other groups that have a lot of complaints here. I think the Palestinian, you know, pro-Palestinian groups have pretty legitimate complaints, and it, it goes exactly to the first thread. You know, the state of Israel runs what's called an internet referral unit. They have a full-time employees of the state of Israel whose entire job it is to tell Twitter and Facebook to take content down under Israeli law. Is that bad? Right? And, well, I think that is something that is going to exist. And so what we should have is complete and total transparency right. And what content was taken down because a sovereign state said it should be taken down, right? And that's the kind of transparency that if they want to provide, would be great. I'm not sure Barry Weiss believes that that would be appropriate. But if she really cared about the things she thinks she's caring about, then complete transparency of what is being moderated and in what situations that was because of an external request, I think is required. And this is what is lost in, I think, the bad faith nature of these debates, because it's just so hard to differentiate, you know, a supposed absolutist stance on free speech and the particular political viewpoints that you have that you feel are being, you know, kneecapped by the people that are in charge. Because if you truly did believe in these things, you being, you know, the free speech absolutist, Elon Musk, David Sachs, all these people that are bitching and moaning on Twitter, they would not have released it to specific journalists who were given specific instructions on how to disseminate this information. Jack Dorsey even publicly asked Elon, you should release all of these documents to all the journalists who had to provide full transparency, which you were saying at the outset would be the only way that you could have like a true and fair reckoning of what was going on inside Twitter during this period, right? These guys are definitionally useful idiots here. They are targeting reporters who want to see the world a certain way, really want to profess their independence, but are clearly aligned with delivering the message that Elon Musk wants. I mean, it's very similar to some of the Iraq war reporting and, you know, you would think Tybee would be sort of terrified of becoming that person. I just find it ridiculous. And the other thing I wanted to flag is just, and I think we've all hinted at this, is just the sort of American narcissism that, like, the great sort of political speech challenge of our time is going to revolve around libs of TikTok rather than China, nation states, yeah. fascism, like, the big questions, like just the narcissism of it is mind boggling to me. Well, but this is OK. So if you want to take their argument seriously, that has been true of kind of the American center left as well, is that all of the discussions were about Trump and right. not about the fact that 95 percent of Facebook's users are out, outside the United States. Eighty percent of Twitter's users are outside the United States. But those people are facing much worse because, one, they live in states that have massive censorship and propaganda outlets. And two, they're countries that don't have a First Amendment. And so if you live in India, Hunter Biden's laptop just seems quaint because right now the Indian state is the most censorious democratic state on the planet. They send more requests than any other government to take down stuff. On um, Twitter? And a lot of that yeah, so, on Twitter and Facebook. So how, yeah, much, according is, to the, how much is Twitter? India 
and then get to China. Like what, how much is Twitter dealing with India and China right now? Like how important are those platforms in those countries? Right. So Twitter is blocked in China, right? When you think about the risk from China, it is that the People's Republic of China has a very large and growing propaganda capability that targets Twitter. Traditionally, the Chinese propaganda capability was focused on Chinese and on Chinese platforms. And two incidents has changed that over the last five years. First, the series of uprisings in Hong Kong. The PRC found themselves totally at a disadvantage versus these highly online, very good English-speaking Hong Kong students who were able to get their side of the story out. And then the second was COVID, was that, you know, with everybody blaming China, you know, either at some level, whatever you believe about Wuhan, I think you could say, you know, obviously COVID came from China, whether it was natural or not that they wanted to distract from that and also push the idea that China's response to COVID was appropriate. And so our team at SIO, we do a bunch of reports on this kind of stuff. And we've seen a huge growth in Chinese capabilities over the last several years in English and German and Spanish. They've also really pushed their state media outlets like CGTN are now huge in a way that Russia today, for example, never was. And Elon Musk won't say a fucking word about China, right? Has he said anything about it? People are directly asking about it. He has no. extreme sensitivity. Like, he has factories in China, right? There are obvious pressure points that he's sensitive to, and he won't say a word about. Almost all of his net worth is in Tesla stock. Tesla has a massive gigafactory in Shanghai from which they will be producing cars to be shipped around the world, but especially in Asia, I believe. And China is already 25% of the revenue. Clearly, if you look at, like, discounted cash flows for the future, China is going to be more than 50%, right, of their stock price. And so, yes, the PRC has huge leverage over him. It's like if Mark Zuckerberg, instead of having all his money in Facebook stock, his money was like in a Chinese pharmaceutical company, right? And it's like, this is How this is something we've never really faced if before. Republicans were sincere. They would be going insane over this. I mean, this is any national security serious person would be terrified of this situation. Yes. Yeah. Right, because the team... So right before the election, this got very little play, but we wrote this up at eipartnership.net. If you look at our blog for 2022, right before the election, there were five disinformation networks taken down in a coordinated work by Twitter and Facebook. We did the write-up and the analysis of who they were, and it was the Iranians and the Chinese. Most of it was anti-Republican. In fact, one of the groups was a, they created an entire fake anti-Rubio group in Florida. Fascinating. That the Chinese did. And to so what end? This, because they think Republicans are to, more hostile to China? or Yes, right. No, I think, I think actually you are starting... The, the idea that foreign influence is something that is only pro-Republican is a very 2016 idea. Hmm. What's happened is American democracy has become the World Cup of disinformation where everybody cares about our elections. Right. Even our House and Senate elections sort of are important. Fair they don't get to vote in them. It impacts everybody. <laughs> right, right. And so... If you're a government, you've got your political leader saying, hey, why are we not playing here, too? If the Russians are playing there and the Chinese. And so, you know, Iran and China were running disinformation campaigns. They were taking about Twitter. That entire team at Twitter that did that work is gone. Every single one of them. Not a single person that we used to email to work on this stuff together is still there. And Republicans should care about that because a bunch of disinformation on Twitter is anti-Republican, right? Is anti-GOP, is sometimes anti-Trump, but in many cases, targeting, in this case, like Rubio, very specific kind of mainstream Republican politicians because they see them as not beneficial to Iran or China. And so, yes, I do think like we're stuck in this weird 2017 moment where Republicans don't care about foreign influence and Democrats do. 
And therefore, you can play to the right of saying that none of this stuff is real, but that just does not match the facts on the ground as documented and that we will not be able to document very much anymore if nobody at Twitter is minding the store. So this is kind of a soft target, but I I feel like we have to deal with it to an extent. Um, We've seen as Elon has, you know, spent a little bit more time on Twitter, there is a creeping arbitrariness behind his own moderation decisions. He has banned Kanye from the platform for posting a swastika, which is actually fine, I would think. Like, it's, And he it's could a, release the process behind that. I mean, he, like... There, there's a symbol there. He has not allowed Alex Jones back on the platform because he believes that, you know, everything that he said about Sandy Hook was, you know, disgusting and, and harmful and he doesn't want to be running a platform that's like that. So there's obviously a, a huge amount of hypocrisy, blatant, in the way that he's approaching content moderation decisions. Where do you see this going with him? Like, if he's still in this kind of 2017 mindset, He's starting to come to terms with the fact that a free-for-all, absolutist stance on free speech is not actually what he wants. Let's even take the economic pressures from what advertisers want off the table. Where do you see Elon progressing uh, in terms of building up or rebuilding some of the content moderation structures that he took down? I really don't know. Other than the thing I said the day he closed the deal was he you know, kind of bought himself into a world of pain here. Because one, he is exposed to all these countries. You know, he sells products all around the world. He is somebody who has, until this moment, maintained a kind of bipartisan respect for him. Another company he owns, SpaceX, I believe 80, 90% of the revenue comes from the U.S. government. They are effectively a defense contractor to NASA and DOD. And so he's kind of ruining his reputation with half the people who vote on budgets that give him billions of dollars. And then by saying, I am the decider, there is no policy mechanisms, there's no council, there's no discussion. You only have to lobby me he has made himself kind of personally, if not legally, morally responsible for everything that happens on Twitter. And I think, one, he seems to be kind of spinning out of control a little bit in his own interactions. Like, it's getting more and more. Like, <laughs> if I was a family a member, I'd be actually worried. So, uh... <laughs> yeah, he said, I run a... Right. And so, like, I proposed to him, you know, that they should have these transparency mechanisms, which is a totally nonpartisan, you know, idea. And he said, I run a propaganda platform, which you know, we've got a couple of grad students. I've got like four full-time employees and a bunch of real smart kids who work for me. I'm not sure I would call that a platform, but that's cool. Like if, if he wants to say that, but like he's he's kind of spinning out of control in his interactions with people. And I think he's going to find this is not fun. It's also really affecting the stock price. Tesla stock has plummeted even worse than all these other companies. I think part of it is he is destroying the brand of Tesla and he is going to find that doing this for the lulls is going to have real long-term economic impact on him. I think in a year, he's not going to own Twitter because I think it's it's not going to be fun dealing with these issues. They never stop. There will never not be a moderation controversy on Twitter. It is going to massively distract him and it's destroying his brand. And I say this as like, I drive a Tesla. I have a Tesla roof. I have power walls behind me back here. So I, I think Tesla has built incredible things. And I don't think I'd ever buy a Tesla product again. I've got 20 years of depreciation now on the roof uh, that I'm going to have to live with, but I'm never buying a car again. And that's true for like, a, you know, when you think about the people who buy Teslas, you're talking about kind of urban and suburban college educated people with high incomes. Yeah. He's not playing to that base very well. Right, right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, yes, I've heard this, this argument from a lot of other people that it's like, if you are, and this is just the general issue I think the Republican Party is maybe running into is as you fight entirely on culture war, it matters, but you are yourselves, you know, a well-off group of people, you kind of got to think about who your audience is at a certain point. And that's fine if you feel like you were the voice for, you know, middle America, but you're also selling hell of expensive cars that, I mean, good for you if you can make cars for those people, but by and large, you really aren't. 
I know this is getting psychological, but like, what do you think is going on? Sometimes I'm like, it's their children. Their children are all like so left that they can't even understand it. And the culture that they're facing with their children is alienating to them. Why is he like huffing this sort of like libs of TikTok content to such a degree that he's been so radicalized? He totally vacillates between saying that he wants to like be on the side of the middle 80% and then he says he's going to support Ron DeSantis and every every account he's validating is some weird right-wing account. Well, that's where the business side gets really interesting too, because you can see the rationalization starting to come together over there that because they are taking this quote-unquote absolutist free speech stance, they're starting to lose advertisers. And now they're blaming woke capitalism for all of this because, you know, these advertisers don't want to be associated with a platform that is, you know, riven with hate speech. But if you are an advertiser, you know, or a big brand, you are trying to sell the most amount of products as possible. And you see like the sentiment that most of the country has, which is most people don't like seeing these things on their timeline. And most people don't want to be surrounded by, you know, this level of hate speech. And so, you know, they can't even like rely on the free market argument in order to prove that what they're fighting for is like what the, you know, most of the country wants. Yeah, he is definitely, Twitter is definitely cash flow negative at this point, right? Like Twitter's never been a great business. It is over the last 10 years, you know, it's only had a couple of quarters of profitability, but effectively it was making as much revenue as it spent. So it was going to be an ongoing concern for the foreseeable future. And what he did was he did reduce his costs by laying off all these people, but he also has massively destroyed his revenue. I'm sure he's increased engagement with all this craziness, but that is the supply of advertising, right? So he's increased the supply in the marketplace. Every time you see an ad on Twitter or any other platform, that is the outcome of a real-time bidding war between advertisers. And I guarantee the price of those Twitter ads have gone through the floor because the big brand advertisers who are willing to spend the big money on those CPCs or CPMs are not are mostly gone. A couple are left like Amazon. And then you saw that the Daily Stormer guy, when you go through his feed, the Amazon ads are on there. So we just saw you know, a quiet letter to advertisers from Twitter saying we're coming up with more brand safety stuff so you can block certain uh, accounts and such. I don't know if that's going to be good enough, Um, but I am sure they're losing a bunch of money. And that doesn't only include the fact that he he borrowed a huge amount of money and he attached to the new Twitter corporation over a billion dollars in interest payments per year. And so, yes, he could massively cut the staff and keep Twitter running because all a lot of the hard engineering has been done and it's now in like a sustained engineering mode. But he's not going to be able to make serious changes. And so he talks about these big ambitious things about building the everything app, building payments, building this, building that. You can't do that on a skeleton crew, at least not safely, once you already have a base of hundreds of millions of users. And so I think he's he's going to find himself in this weird trap where he's going to have to continue to subsidize it out of his personal net worth, which again, because of his actions, is dropping, right? Um, and so like the people who are really should be angry here are probably Tesla shareholders because his continued sale of Tesla stock plus his erratic behavior is tanking Tesla stock in a way that is great for the shorts, of which I'm not. Um, and, and they have made, the shorts have made billions. Um, but for normal Tesla stockholders, they're the ones holding the bag. Do you think liberals have set too low of a bar for Elon's Twitter? Like, do you think this whole thing, the website is just going to start like going down? Or It felt like there was a moment where, I don't know, there was just like a panic over like, oh, this could all end like tomorrow. Or how do you see that playing out? I mean, he's just running more risk, right? Like you could run Twitter with 300, 400 people. So, you know, Twitter has about 500,000 servers in three main data centers, as well as in a couple dozen pops, right? So 
you need your data center operations people, you need your infra people who manage the hardware and software remotely, and then you need your DevOps people who keep it running. That's your minimum, right? So, you, you know, probably maybe 400 people, 500 people, you can keep it up and running indefinitely. If you want to actually build this incredibly complicated app that is effectively the American version of WeChat, then you're going to need hundreds and thousands of engineers, designers, product managers, and the like. Um, and so is it just going to go down? I think he's taking more risk because the depth of their engineering talent has decreased. I mean, I think one of the crazy things he's done is he's done the layoffs in a way that has incentivized people who have other options to leave. Mm -hmm. The craziest, from like a, just a complete take the politics out, from a Harvard Business Review organizational management perspective, sending an email that says, click this button if you're so hardcore, you want to have a horrible life. If you don't, I will automatically pay you 90 days of severance going into the holidays, is just selecting for people who don't think they can get a job by January and people who have like H-1B visas and such. And so, a bunch or of people who believe or people who believe in whatever, you know, political project he is trying to advance through yes. Twitter, which, which, which I don't do, think is a majority of yeah. the of the L7 engineers at Twitter. I guarantee that the majority of them do not think he's doing a good job. And 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 they, those people, there have been a lot of layoffs in tech. But if you're like an L7 at Twitter and you have operated at the scale, you will have a job in two weeks. Guaranteed. And his vision isn't even clear. Like, even if you're a diehard he alternates, so it's hard. You're really sort of going with the, I don't know, dear leader sensibility where you're supporting whatever right. Elon capriciously wants to do. I mean, it's worked for him in the past because Tesla had a mission. Right. We're going to make electric cars real. We're going to save the Earth. SpaceX, we're getting humanity off this planet. We're reinvigorating American. Those are incredible missions. They're missions that people will take less money and work 80-hour weeks for. There's no, what is the elevator pitch of Musk's Twitter? It's, we're going to run this for the personal gratification of Musk. That is not the kind of thing you're like, oh, I'll never see my kids and I'm fine with it. <laughs> that, right. you know, that's going to motivate you for that. So this gets to the kind of interesting question, at least interesting to us, maybe question about the journalists that are at the center of all of these quote unquote revelations. Because, you know, we have with Barry Weiss, well, she's more or less just, you know, become a partisan to the certain types of people that believe that the left is an anti-free speech group and they're, you know, they, they are out there to cater to the whims of the blue-haired pronoun people. And you have people like Matt Taibbi, who I think is a great journalist. Um, I, I'd love to have him on, Matt, uh, if, you, if you hear this, we're, we're down to chat. But I think there is something very strange and almost insidious happening with the non-mainstream journalists, the ones that are contrarian, basically, by nature, in that they are trying to rebel against, you know, the, the mainstream argument that's been pushed forward over the last couple of years. And the overreaction, I would say overreaction by the New York Times to things like Russiagate or, you know, Facebook content moderation, all this other stuff. And they have ended up in a place like Eric mentioned earlier, in which they are willing to be mouthpieces. And there's really no other word for it. Mouthpieces for the richest person in the world in which he can, you know, release selectively release documents that are being pushed through the platform that he owns that if nothing else is going to bring like it, this, this fucking thing. But from a journalistic aspect here, how did we end up here? Is there anything positive to say about deciding to carry water for Elon Musk in an extremely untransparent way? My personal view on this is I'm just very skeptical of like the conservative media project. My first job out of college, I worked for the Washington Examiner, which was sort of a Republican billionaire funded outlet. But I, uh, you know, I took the job because I was covering DC City Hall. And, you know, it was 
fairly straight news sensibility. But ultimately, like, I found, like, the conservative impulse to be, like, pretty sloppy, willing to, like, throw up, you know, headline numbers of, like, budget deficits without sort of much thinking about the context. And it was very similar to, like, what we're seeing now, where it's, can it be truthful enough that it's something that we can all get, like, angry about and score points on? And I I don't quite know culturally why, like, the right hasn't been able to build up great conservative media, like, dispositionally. But I just... I've never seen them successful. And that's part of why I sort of have cheered for like a Musk Twitter. It's like, okay, make the right actually govern as they say they want to. But I mean, I think as we've all sort of said, they I've seen no evidence that they can. I don't know. Are, Alex, are you as cynical as I am? Why can't the right wing deliver sort of a, a coherent argument here? Well, it's interesting. When you talk about Taibi, I think, Unfortunately, he's trending towards Greenwald, who the biggest enemy for Glenn Greenwald is West Wing normie Democrats, right? right? Like West Wing watching Obama voters, even though he has moved to a country that has a semi-fascist dictator who is now fighting against, you know, Bolsonaro, who Greenwald hates, is now fighting against being democratically elected out. And, you know, who's going to support him in that? It looks like Musk. Musk has been tweeting things positively saying about he's looking into whether Bolsonaro was improperly treated by tw- by Twitter, that no matter what the facts are, that the worst people are just normie Democrats. It, I feel the same way about Ed Snowden is like, if one day Ed Snowden is going, when he is no longer useful, something horrible is going to happen to him in, in Moscow by the FSB. And his last thought's going to be the real enemy is Barack Obama. Right. Like it's just you you have these people where it's they they've got such anger that they have to then realign everything else around the these like basic ideas of, you know, basic center left right. kind of uh normal, you know, government in the United States is the worst thing ever. So somehow either Trump is president or, you know, populists around the world are really the representatives of the people. I do sadly think that the common denominator in a lot of this, ironically, is Twitter that the Twitter engagement mechanism for a lot of people, especially contrarians, is just to get into fights with people. It's just to score points in the midst of some sort of Twitter argument. And that, by definition, is going to push you into taking very bizarre stances and and, and into strange corners. And I see someone like Greenwald, you know, journalistically, the stuff that he's pushing out through his Substack and, you know, if he's still publishing articles anywhere else, still pretty strong stuff. I mean, you mentioned Brazil, you know, he was responsible for the dissemination of a lot of files that were leaked in Brazil that helped exonerate Lula, who is now maybe going to be the president there. So again, like when it gets to the moral compass, I still think it's pointing in the right direction. But because Twitter has dominated so much of the way journalists view their job and and the way to establish their brand, that it's just going to end up in this place where really good journalists are willing to make concessions to some of the least good faith actors out there and ones that in every other way they do not agree with them politically just so that they can you know score points against normie democrats and it's super depressing there's no other word for it because i do respect these people but this is not the answer i think yeah the interesting thing i was talking about yesterday too is the strategy of bringing these people in to look through your files it's okay to let you know i don't think it's journalistically appropriate to only do it for two but if you're going to let people look through your internal communications but Musk has a legal responsibility to protect user data. So if we continue down this path where now Taibi and Weiss and their kind of political, 
you know, those kinds of political actors are able to go look for, through user data, then Musk is in a world of hurt. And then just while we we're recording this, it was announced something that I predicted yesterday it has happened, which is the Irish Data Protection Commission is now looking into what kind of access Barry Weiss had, because having access to these internal interfaces is exactly the thing that got Twitter in trouble over and over again, because outside hackers or people who are working for the, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia had access to user data. And so Twitter has agreements with the FTC to not allow random people to get access to Twitter user data. And they have such agreements with the Irish GPC, which is the most important regulator for them in Europe. What's, what sort of data in specific is the most sensitive? I mean, DMs, obviously, but like outside of that, what do you think is, is of major concern to regulators? So in the U.S., DMs for sure, because that is the only data for which there's like a straight black letter law that Twitter is responsible for. So the thing called the Stored Communications Act, which is a pretty old law, it was signed by Ronald Reagan. It really was meant to apply to the phone companies and very early email systems. But the Stored Communications Act, 18 U.S.C. 2702, specifically says that if you have, if you're a holder of stored communications of people, you cannot release it to anybody except under certain circumstances. And we're having a lot of fun for the lols is not, turns out, not in the law. Ronald Reagan signed uh, that you can't, you can't release SCA covered material for trolling. For the FTC, is going to be a much broader set of IP address, phone number, anything that is non-public information is covered by the FTC consent decree, which already some of the stuff that's in the interfaces that Weiss looked at it's not clear whether Weiss was actually hands-on keyboard or whether she was just looking over the shoulder. But in either case, probably that was a violation of the FTC consent decree. This is going to put journalists on a weird side here where we're going to be rooting, or at least some of us are going to be rooting for reporters, quote-unquote, to get in trouble for violating Twitter's data security. Well, there, so there's a difference between a leaked email between employees or a document inside and user data, right? And for the most part, when you talk about, like, the Facebook files and such, of situations where journalists have cheered leaks, those are generally internal correspondence between employees that, uh, at least where I saw, were generally, those journalists were then very careful to take out any PII but in this case, like, I think like the fear is that the next step of like Musk on this path is he's just going to let these people get access to DMs. And if he does so, he is just straight black letter that violating federal law. Lunacy. I mean, we, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I a lot of the Twitter stuff that's happening today, we would say was possible. lunacy right. a month ago. Right. Well, I mean, you know, the legal parameters around what Twitter should be doing is already getting brittle because we saw Elon very publicly fire, what was his name? James Baker. The, uh, the, the company's, what is it, like Associate General Counsel or, or one of like the high up... Deputy. Sorry, Deputy, Deputy yeah. General Counsel, who I believe was vetting these documents around the time that, you know, Barry Weiss was looking at them. And this was depicted as some sort of nefarious act where I imagine, I imagine his argument, this is James Baker's argument, is like, we're about to dump a whole bunch of internal shit here. I think I'd want to know whether or not this is going to be in violation of federal and statutes. I love how Elon's just like, I didn't know he worked for me. Like, you know, like that's sort of builds his credibility it's i mean it was that it's one of his top lawyers if not top lawyer and the and elon doesn't know who the it guy. might have been one of the, i mean there's no general counsel right. so apparently his personal lawyer who i am shocked quinn emmanuel still has him as an employee but i guess he's creating a huge amount of litigation business for qe but apparently his personal lawyer is effectively the gc now and i don't know how the gc would not know who their deputy general counsels were generally it's Considering Baker's background, I mean, I don't know him and I don't know exactly what he did, but every tech company's got somebody like that who came from either like the National Security Division of DOJ or FBI because 
when you operate the scale, you get legal requests from governments around the world continuously. And so you need an entire legal department that thinks about those things. And so, yes, I guarantee one of the things in Baker's internal analysis would be we have SCA, ECPA, as well as FTC and Irish Data Protection Commission commitments that we need to follow when doing this. And they're like, oh, that's a bunch of legal gobbledygook. You're fired, right? So, I mean, you can YOLO through this, but the truth is, is when he bought Twitter, Twitter was already, had already twice made a deal with the FTC. So he purchased a company that is already kind of under consent decree that is being looked over by a federal judge. His ability to fight any of this was effectively already given away by previous administrations of Twitter. That is part of the liabilities he purchased. So if he thinks he can just be like, oh, it's a reset because I bought it, that's not how any of this works. Um, And more importantly than Baker is on the same day, his chief information security officer, chief compliance officer, and chief privacy officer all resigned. And that happened to be the day that they were supposed to sign a letter to the FTC. So I think it is highly likely there's already a quiet FTC investigation going on because Twitter already missed a deadline under their consent decree. And all of the people that the FTC used to integrate, used to work with to make sure that Twitter was protecting user data are gone. And if you uh, violate the, the terms of your consent decree, I mean, what are the penalties for that? Is it a fine? Is it, you know, do you lose your, your tweeting license? Like what exactly happens? I mean, I believe the only things I've ever heard of is the FTC can fine you, but the amount they can do so could be pretty significant. You know, the largest right now is $5 billion to Facebook. To Facebook, that was nothing. $5 billion to Twitter, which is now losing 2 to $3 billion a year probably, would be disastrous. Yeah, that, would, that would be more than the, I mean, $5 billion would be more than all the cash equivalents, all the liquid wealth of Twitter. So if like the FTC matched the Facebook fine, Musk would have to go sell Tesla stock and then recapitalize the company to keep it a going concern. Mm-hmm. Are fines based on the value of the company or are fines based purely on sort of how egregious the infraction was? It is based upon the politics and the negotiation <laughs> and the judge. Right. And it is um, where it is based on the size of the companies in Europe. And there are limits to how much you can be fined, but also they could be ordered to stop, cease operations in Europe. That would be a possibility. To get super reflective on this, I mean, a premise of the conversation going in is like, okay, we want to take them as seriously as possible. I mean, it's amazingly hard to actually engage with like the Elon Musk camp directly. I mean, Elon's not out there giving tough interviews and even like getting proxies for him is very difficult. Um, You know, we had Jason Kalkanis on, he wouldn't talk about it. So anyway, we started this conversation off with the premise that, you know, we wanted to sort of take them seriously. I wanted to just raise like, is that a mistake? (laughs) Like, do you think there's a point where we just need to sort of to just stop taking them so seriously if if these arguments are so sloppy. I think you have to take Musk seriously because he has incredible power now. Like his ability to shape the conversation in the middle American political class, he is now the most important person. Right. In that but you space. don't have to take him as sincere. In fact, he gives lots of evidence that he's not. He contradicts himself every other day, and yet you see reporters sort of constantly taking him at his word. I don't know. At some level, we have to say somebody's not trustworthy. They're not straightforward. I think you're right, Musk. Like, it's hard to take him completely seriously now, even though he's got this global power. Of more interest to me, so you mentioned Calacanis not being willing to engage on this. I'm putting down a marker now. The Musk bubble in tech is going to pop, right? That right now it has become trendy to be seen as counterculture, to be seen on Team Musk. And there's a bunch of people who, people who I used to work with, people who I've interacted with socially who are smart, serious people, who are now kind of waving the Musk flag. 
And just like with Trump, just like with FTX, that bubble's going to pop and you're going to see all these people all of a sudden try to rewrite history that they were just, oh, you know, yeah, I invested a little bit money or I gave him some suggestions because like Musk is accelerating his kind of breakdown here. And if you end up with Twitter going out of business, him having to give up the Twitter to the bondholders or the, the debt holders, if you see him having to step down as CEO as Tesla, uh, if you see some kind of massive moment or, you know, if there's like a horrible, violent act that happens publicly, if there is, God forbid, something of the level of a Christchurch shooting or something that gets attached back to Musk's moderation decisions, all of a sudden, all these people who thought it was real cool to be on Team Musk are going to reverse themselves. And so I hope people are taking screenshots because you know, like, right. this is, it's just right. a very scary, like there's a scary impulse in the Valley right now. Like a lot of what the New York Times wrote about people in Silicon Valley in 2018 was not that correct. But now a bunch of the things they said then are now applying to 2022, right? About the politics of individuals and the fact that he has become this Pied Piper for otherwise serious people who's, I've been to their house, I've had dinner with their family, and now they've turned into, it feels in Silicon Valley a little bit like in the, you know, after Trump was elected and families got kind of riven, it feels a little bit like that in the Valley, Hmm. in that a bunch of otherwise serious smart people are now in this kind of orbit and are going to have to, it'll be interesting to see when, like Calacanis being that quiet about it, I thought was the start. Like, because he's very smart about his public image. And I think that is the start of an indication that people are going to start well, to Well, I, I took him as being quiet because anything he says gets attributed to Elon and then Elon gets mad at him. I and mean, we sort, sort of saw it in the DMs. The text messages. Yeah, sorry. The text messages where Calcanis is getting chided for being too loud. So I took it that way. Honestly, as much as we enjoy Jason, I mean, I feel like he's pretty much rolling over. I mean, if you listen on All In, he's not sort of defending sort of the Democratic line. He's just sort of letting... He's he's pretty pro Elon. He, I, yeah, I think he's he's very much sort of capitulated to his co-hosts who who love sort of the Musk party and love to shit on Democrats right now. I mean, by the way, if I if I were an editor, the idea that, you know, Elon is the new Trump when it comes to dividing families in Silicon Valley and the uncomfortable <laughs> conversation I have at the table. Excellent story. There you yeah. go. Just threw that out. No, there. that's smart. That's no, very so, smart. Look on Val- if the New York Times wasn't on strike, they could write that story. It's, it's, the, it's the perfect New York Times style section story. VCs always want to be optimists. I mean, that's, they feel like, I mean, it's it's been a winner to be pro-Elon. You know, I mean, I mean, Mark Andreessen was somewhat defensive of Elizabeth Holmes for a period. Like, I feel like the positioning over and over again has just been defend sort of crazy optimists. Well, and Andreessen's one of those guys I'm very just I'm very sad about because I used to work for him at LoudCloud. I reported to him on the board. I'm an LP in Andreessen Horowitz. I get a K1 every year from him. And he blocks me on Twitter and then was subtweeting me last night and has gone kind of full. What's the deal? Um, I mean, we're obsessed with Mark Andreessen. What's the deal? I mean, he's never been the most kind of empathetic guy. Like one of my first negative Mark Andreessen moments was after I joined LoudCloud. It was during the dot bomb. And we were doing a layoff and Ben Horowitz, who actually is like who he says he is, was up there in tears talking to the company about how he had to lay people off and how horrible it was to do this to the family. But it was necessary to move forward. And Mark was over on the side on his BlackBerry typing out an email, like not even paying attention. Right? And I was like, that's the difference right. between Ben and Mark. And so, yeah, I mean, he's never... He's. I think he's... One of the things is that money has disconnected him from the world. Like you, he lives in like a 
a palace in Atherton with high walls. And I don't know if you saw, but, you know, he was part of the group trying to keep Atherton oh, yeah. from really? doing We did a whole episode about yeah. that. You know, yeah, we're, we were very interested Affordable in housing, yeah. $3 million per condo, yeah. right? Like cheap housing, which is... Um, they you have know, to they have to hire round the clock security now because there are you know people moving in low rent people moving into Atherton. It's pretty dangerous out yeah. there. Yeah, and so he's I think like you know there's these people in the valley. To me, the the moment at which you start to t- completely lose touch is when you have enough money to fly private. That that's like the last situation in which you ever have to mix with normal people is like in an airport. And so if you're like going in a armored SUV to the airport and you're flying private and you're going to Davos and you never have to kind of interact with normal people. There's a bunch of people in the valley who are at that level, and and, and, and they're that making that their around. ideology. You know, Balaji's out there. Don't give interviews. Don't reply to comment. You know, they they sort of convince themselves that non engagement is sort of principled, and so then they make their sort of self isolation complete. I don't know. I I just wish they'd communicate in essay format. Like I feel like for people who claim to be so smart that all their arguments emerge in like tweets is just. There's also like an inability to like accept the L. I mean, you saw that after the midterms, you know, the people that were the loudest in terms of, you know, woke people are destroying America. That campaign tactic didn't work nearly as well as you would have expected it to. And instead of saying, hey, maybe we should recalibrate because our viewpoints aren't as popular as we thought they were, you know, they just avoid the topic. Right. I know the midterms, it felt like a moment where, yeah, in Silicon Valley, sort of the sense that the based crowd or the, you know, these meme warriors were going to like, win. It just seemed totally out of touch with an America that clearly was very worried about normie lib stuff. Yeah. To zoom back, the midterms, I think the positive thing here is that finally a significant part of the professional Republican Party is starting to understand that telling your voters that voting is rigged, that voting early is a bad idea, that they should not, you know, Carrie Lake was telling people not to put their ballot in the backup box if the local scanner that kind of stuff is going to become dispositive in these elections where it's 15 or 20,000 votes. And so that is the one, I think the positive thing that came out of the midterms was that finally people have figured out election denialism is actually in a democracy is a losing, you can fight it, but in the long run, it is a losing battle because you're telling people to be politically disconnected. Right. And, And also, you know, just to bring this back to the Twitter files, you know, I think if these stories, you know, or the revelations do not end up getting the purchase and reach that they were hoping to because they decided to, they being Elon Musk and that whole crowd, decided to completely circumvent, you know, the mainstream media's role in, you know, the national discussion, then maybe you should think, you know, they're not exactly always going to be the enemy. And you have to at least position this in a somewhat neutral way that, you know, the broader public, at least as far as the broader public that reads the mainstream media will want to engage in this stuff. So, you know, if you guys didn't end up getting what you wanted through all of this, maybe some self-reflection would be in order. Are you surprised that Mark Andreessen's still on the Facebook board? I am, but, you know, Peter Thiel made it a long time, <laughs> too. So, you think it's just um, being a loyalist is great? And why would right. Musk get rid of He's somebody who's just like, even though, like, clearly Andreessen disagrees with Zuckerberg on how he's governing, that at least he's, like, super deferential? Right, like, I think in the situations in which the board could have put some controls on Zuck, there have been multiple situations in which Zuck has asked the board to kind of stamp his corporate, you know, the creation of of ultra voting yes, shares and stuff like that. Named after such an incident, yes, yeah. So in whatever they disagree with politically, you're right. In every situation where Zuck needed his vote, he got his vote. So 
yeah, I think at this point, he never, Zuck doesn't get rid of him unless he does something like Teal goes so politically outside. But what's happened is, unfortunately, the board is much more subservient to Zuck than it was during my day. Like there were really independent directors, Erskine Bowles, you know, for example, who asked lots of questions and such. And uh, I feel like the Facebook board has become a, a rubber stamp, which is, you know, I mean, the upside for Zuck is, you know, he looks incredible now compared to like, like the bar has been set low, so low by like the fact that he is not, you know, personally trolling people, that he has structural uh, kind of. He has an oversight that board. Zuck has, yeah. has an oversight board and other internal structures for making decisions that he isn't out there personally going back and forth, back and forth on things makes him look really good. And it, it makes the, you know, people thought the oversight board was a crazy idea. He, Zuck hated being the guy that was responsible for content moderation so much. He spent $200 million to build this oversight board. And then Musk spent $44 billion to become the guy that <laughs> Zuck tried to get out of. It. Right. Very well. Here's maybe my last question and, and we can, you know, try to spin it forward or at least as broadly as possible. Is there anything that can be learned about content moderation by the other platforms, by the debacle? that has been playing out here in terms of Elon's approach to moderation? Is there something that can be said at least reaffirming those who, who felt that building content oversight board is meaningful? You know, the, the dialogue between platforms and countries, which, you know, I think that's a fascinating thing that not enough people have written about. I don't know. Just try to give me some sort of optimism about a positive outcome from, you know, the, the implosion that we're witnessing here. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think the lesson has been that having procedural mechanisms around content moderation where you set a standard and then you have a bunch of smart people argue about whether certain content violates that standard or not. While that seems like the worst way to do it is the worst way to do content moderation, except all the others, <laughs> right? That has demonstrated that there is a real value to not creating a situation where lobbying one person is responsible. It, it, traditionally, Twitter you know, smeared this responsibility over dozens of folks none of whom could then be said, this person is responsible for what happens. Because I don't think Musk understands the people he's dealing with are, there's going to be violence, right? There is going to be violence tied to the speech that is happening on Twitter that is a constant challenge of balancing real-world violent impact versus trying to protect political speech. And he's gone very hard to one side, and that violence will be personally, if not legally attached to him, morally attached. And it might be legally attached because there's this case, Gonzalez, uh, in the Supreme Court where effectively Section 230 protections around certain kind of violent acts that are encouraged by platforms would be attached to the platforms as a responsibility. And so, like, he, right now, he's got some Section 230 protections, but that might not make it past the Supreme Court. Especially when Republicans are in favor of repealing Section well, 230 as the nuclear the option. They're, they're about over, uh, the, do you think, do Jesus. you think we will see any legislation? I mean, do you think, I mean, we could solve this transparency problem instead of just leak, you know, selectively leaking things. Yeah. I, yeah. Do you think there'll be legislation? Right. So my, I mean, my colleague, Nick Persily has put out a platform transparency act that has gotten uh, bipartisan co-sponsors. So I'd love, maybe this is an opportunity. I'd love to see Musk support uh, required transparency that he could, he could voluntarily do it, but then it gets backstopped by law that his competitors have to have transparency. For the most part, I don't think there'll be regulation in the U.S. This will be, what will be most important for Twitter is going to be FTC now, right? Like they're pretty clearly in violation of their consent decree. Whether they can cure that or end up getting fined will be an interesting question. And then in Europe, Twitter is now the number one target of the Digital Services Act. The Europeans are so happy because they wanted what, what, ha what failed with GDPR 
is they didn't beat somebody up on the first day of prison, right? So like GDPR was this real <laughs> slow burn where they tried to make, they wanted to punish a Facebook or Google, but for a bunch of procedural reasons, they weren't able to do so quickly. But DSA, I think, now that he is acting so kind of out of the norm, and he's also fired all of the people that would normally fight the DSA for him. I know. Everybody wants to make this about the Democratic Party, but then we've got the Europeans over there who are even to the left of the Democrats. Uh, right, anyway. right. Well, as, El- as Elon would say, popcorn emoji, popcorn emoji. <laughs> anyway, Alex. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks. This was great. Thanks for doing this, Alex. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye, 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 goodbye.